they were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze! Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You're truly prepared to be despised within a department? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. Interrogations will be led by Lieutenant Edmund Exley. I need some backup. Come on. All right, Collins boy, I'll help. Now, all of them are faced with solving one case. Don't move! I want confessions, Edmund. Oh, I'll break them, sir. These people are all in the morgue. And someone has to pay for it. There's something wrong with the night owl. I just can't prove it. They thought they had it all figured out. Anything bothering you about the night owl case? The fact that you guys won't let it get filed away. I didn't kill nobody! But what started as a murder... You talk only to me on this one. ...became a mystery that could cost them everything. Why was Susan Leffert at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How about some payback, big time? We need evidence. I'll get the evidence. It was an information exchange. Do you have any proof? The proof had his throat slit. What do you want, actually? I just want to solve this thing. Even if it means paying the consequences? Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pierce, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger, Danny DeVito. L.A. Confidential. Welcome back. You are listening to Joygasm, a video game and movie podcast. I'm Ross, Xbox Live Toaster 360. He is Steve, Xbox Live Steveovich. And we are journeying back to the 1950s film noir in today's episode of 193, October 3rd, 2020. We're going to jump right into our topic of the day, which is the LA Confidential Movie Review. This was a decision that we decided to make because of the fact that there really haven't been any films that have been released uh, due to the coronavirus and with the movie theaters being shut down and whatnot. We haven't even seen Tenet. Well, actually, did... Tenet did get released. Did it yeah. get released? Because I, I saw that like it got delayed, it got pushed back, then it was going to come yeah. out, then it didn't come out. Like, yeah. did, it, did it come out? It came out in the theaters. People were, people were watching it, um, but it just hasn't really... You know, people are still really afraid to go to the theater, so it hasn't got a whole lot of press. Okay. It should have just come right out to, to like, stream or DVD. Or not, no, no, not, not, not DVD. <laughs> not DVD. It should have just come straight out to VHS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <you> gotta- <laughs> Tons of people want to pick it up. All the elementary school classrooms and everything. (laughs) (laughs) Wheeling out the TV. Okay, kids, let's see Tenet. Okay. I I, I feel like VHS is probably one of those things that will never, ever, 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 (laughs) ever, ever, ever have any kind of like nostalgia uh, rekindling or rebirth. Because like like record players, for example, like there's there is something that's really romantic about it and cool. And so yeah, it makes sense. Like people like oh yeah. I, I I went out and bought a record player and I'm starting a record collection. It's like, I oh, bought okay. an LP today. For some reason, it's like, <laughs> you don't really like, yeah, I'm starting a VHS collection because I want to yeah. watch these, these, 
uh, <laughs> constantly deteriorating movies on cassette tape, essentially is what it is. I'm hoarding plastic. I will say, though, it is weird to, to think about the differences between cassette tape versus VHS. Because I do feel like Guardians of the Galaxy made cassette tapes cool again to a certain extent. Not that, not, not there's like the sort of huge demand for cassette tapes, but there, there, I don't know, for me, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on this. For me, uh, cassette tapes is something that like, if you you were to go back to, you're like, man, that was cool. Versus like VHS was like, yeah, that was the format for watching films, but, it, but I was actually all about the DVD and then, you know, everything after that. VHS, if you are cassette tapes, excuse me, what that they would be cool for like 10 minutes. And then you're like, oh yeah, remember the day? Oh wait, what do I gotta do? Oh wait, pause. Oh wait, no, fast forward. No to that moment. Oh no, 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 no. Okay, no, go full further. No, 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 too far. Okay, don't go forward again. <laughs> you're like, oh, I can't just get another one moment where I can't digitally. Yeah, the idea of like the whole fast forward and rewind thing where like Ugh. like you could, if you wanted to, there was like a slower version of rewind and fast forward. So like if you wanted to keep the movie or a TV show or whatever it is that you recorded on screen, you could do so, but then it was very painful because then if you're trying to find a particular scene that was farther away, you're like, oh, it's taking forever. So then you have to literally stop it on the VCR and then hit rewind. And you'd be like, kind of like, depending on like how long you've been hearing the little engines were in, in the uh, the VCR, you're like, I think it's right about here. Click and you like press play and you see where it is. And <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, actually people I thought were pretty proficient at, at getting close to <laughs> Watch, where they were <laughs> watching the countdown of minutes across the right Yeah. <laughs> Man. But I remember, but if you didn't rewind the VHS tape or you rented a movie and the person before you went, yeah, I just returned it. Yeah, it's not my problem. And you put it in the in the in the, <laughs> in the player, waiting waiting for the movie to start, and just the end of the movie, and like the FBI warning, like, hey, yeah, you watch the movie, don't copy. Then you're like, oh, yeah, it's supposed to be at the beginning. Uh, you know, it's usually <laughs> different at the beginning, I should say. And be kind, just, rewind. Then, yeah, and then it just stops and it rewinds. You're like, ah, it took some of the excitement out. Yeah, it, it was a little annoying. You know, there was that whole VHS. Uh, social etiquette that was there. It's yeah. like, you know, you're just like, man, whoever had this before was a jerk. <laughs> Be kind. Rewind. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump into our topic of the day, which of course is LA Confidential Movie Review. This film came out in 1997 mm. and actually won a couple of Oscars. That's when I got for- my, my license, by the way. 1997. Oh, wow. It's a good year. I, I graduated high school in 1997. Nice. Mm-hmm. 1997 actually was the year that the absolutely horrible Batman and Robin movie came out. Oh. That was, uh, oof. It's pretty terrible. A pox on the cinema going experience. But anyway, this particular film came out. And what was interesting too is that Titanic was also released in 1997. Wow. Which is crazy because it was up against Titanic in the Oscars. And if you recall, Titanic swept up uh, every single major category. So there there were a number of of, of really well-done films that year. And anyway, this particular film was one that you and I have both enjoyed quite a bit. We decided we wanted to pick out a film that we hadn't seen in a little while, and we thought it'd be fun to be able to give a review on this. So 
We're going to stick to our normal format, which is just to be able to provide our high-level thoughts in the off chance that there are folks out there listening who perhaps have not seen the film, and then we'll go into spoiler territory. So, Steve, uh, what did you think? Well, this is about the, I think, the second time I've seen it from start to finish. I remember hearing you jabber on about it back in the day. And but, but, but did I jibber-jabber? What did you jibber-jabber? Or did I just jabber? You're just jabber. Oh. You just jib-jabbed. Oh. oh. <laughs> so you always thought it was really good. I never saw it. And then uh, some other folks that I knew saw it. They were talking about it. So I thought, yeah, one day I'll just see it. And I remember having HBO once. And it came on. Oh, hello, confidence. Oh, take a little peek at it. And so I would see... Uh, like they had like a, 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 a like a month long where they were just pushing the movie, and so I would see the movie in little snippets. I'm like All right, one day I just gotta watch it, and then I think at some point when you left for college or came back from college, you left the movie at the house. So I'm like, hmm, I'll put it in there, give it a whirl, <laughs> and so then I watched. That was the first time. So it was years uh, since since the movie was released in in the theater that before you actually saw it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I saw it for snippets and then I saw it from back to back once. And then, so this is like the second time I've seen it all the way through. Mm. It's a good movie though, Russ. I, 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 Wait, I, this, I, was, <clears throat> this time, this last time, last night was the only the second time yeah. you've ever seen it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so, no, I, so I, you know, I, I miss how movies are made like, like that. There was just a, Something different about uh, the way movies were made back then, where they kind of, if it was a rated R movie, they kind of just expected you to have a certain level of, of smarts or just being mature enough to figure everything out. And, the, the you know, all the, the script that was written for the characters is, is so good. It just, it just feels like they respect you as a viewer for watching the movie. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just not assuming your intelligence is X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And I appreciate that, Russ. Well, that's good. That's real good. Because my intelligence is double Z. <sighs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, what do you what do you, what do you think, Russ? How many times have you seen this movie? I have seen this movie a lot. Uh, this is actually one of my all time favorite movies. It's definitely within my t- probably top ten movies of all time for me personally. Oh. Um, what was interesting was when I was preparing for the show, I was doing some research on some of the, the behind the scenes stuff of the film. What was crazy to me was that this budget uh, or the, excuse me, this, this film budget was only $35 million mm. and it went on to gross. I believe it was like just over $126 million worldwide, which even that number, when you compare it to a lot of the, the blockbuster numbers of today really is not very high. And especially considering when you think of, um, various domestic films that come out and are able to actually achieve like $126 million uh, either in like the first few weeks or maybe even over like a, that particular film's lifetime being in the theater domestically, they were able to accrue that much money. Granted movie tickets were cheaper back then and that sort of thing. But it got me thinking about how this film probably hasn't been seen by as many people as like, say, Avengers, right? Yeah, easy. And so I think that that us giving this review is actually very relevant and a great opportunity to be able to discuss just for those who haven't seen the film, because 
I think it's it's one of those that kind of flies under the radar a bit. Like, you know, people who've seen it, they know it. They have a lot of great respect for it, and rightfully so. And so my hope is, is that for folks who haven't seen it, or maybe they saw it like you, like just one time and they haven't seen it since, it, this this will persuade them to go back and watch it again because I, I think it's great. I think the writing is sublime, like you said. Uh, I think that as a result of the quality writing, uh, you have a riveting story, um, that, you know, you have the, the memorable and snappy dialogue and it has that, that, you know, because it's in the fifties, it's more of like that transatlantic, uh, persona type of thing. And there was just a lot more subtlety. I think you and I commented on this last night as we were watching, but there, there's, there is a lot more subtlety back in the day when it comes to describing things or making your opinion known. It's not so like shoved in your face like it is today. There was a lot more of that. Uh, it's not necessarily sophistication, but but it, everything is underplayed, and and you have to kind of really pay attention to what's being said and how it's being said because there's a lot of double entendres and a lot of like uh, effort being made toward being descriptive towards something without being necessarily like front and center offensive <laughs> or insulting. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I also think that as a result of the quality writing, I mean, all of the characters in this film are fully fleshed out. Like you really get an, uh, a good idea of each and every one of these characters due to like them pre- being presented as three dimensional. They're not one dimensional, shallow characters. Each one has their own type of personality and flaws and areas of interest or, 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 um, desire, that sort of thing. I mean, I, th- I think all of that plays into this, this sandbox for the viewer to really enjoy soaking up. I also think that, that in terms of the cast, the acting is fantastic. Oh, easily. I mean, it, yeah. you, it, what was, what was really fun for me to watch this film for the umpteenth time is to be reminded again, when this film came out, you had a lot of actors in there that were young, that really didn't have too many films under their belt yet, that they were really coming into their own. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into that more in the uh, more of the spoiler territory uh, portion of the program. But I, I do feel like like uh, from a high level, people need to know up front, hey, you're going to have some really, really triple A acting experience here. I also want to give kudos to the director um, I, because I do think that this film was masterfully directed. Um, excuse me, directed. <laughs> Director, directored. <laughs> I have um, doctored. I mean, uh, <laughs> the doctor of this film did a great job directing. Yeah. <laughs> I, as I mentioned before, I've watched this film many times. And what I think is really neat, one of, one of the many qualities of this film is how every time I watch it, I pick up something new. Oh, do you? And we talked about that too last night. Even you made certain comments about how you're like, oh, I didn't notice that the last time I saw this. I didn't realize that. And I'm here to tell you, you're going to continue to have that. And, and in fact, when we were, there, there was a moment that we won't go into detail at, at this point of the program, but like there was the, this kind of part of the narrative where you got a little confused. You, you were kind of gray as to like what was going on. And I know exactly how that feels because I was in that same position, but it's only because I've seen the film so many times I was like able to like, Oh, this is what happened as a, as a result of this over here and whatever. And that's all nuance. I love how the director is able to put and cram so much subtle nuance into the film, whether it's, through like the actor's performances or it's through the writing itself or how things are portrayed, you know, just different visual cues. Uh, 
it's it's done so in a way that even for myself last night, I was still picking up on new things I hadn't noticed before. So really, really cool. Can't recommend it enough. <laughs> uh, going into the uh, spoiler elevator, Steve. Oh. I hope you like the Art Deco style of this particular elevator. I do. You know, I the 50s has a special place in my heart, Russ. Oh, does it? Just the, uh, you know, I wish though, you know, this is a good style back in the 50s. I think I could fit in. Although I wouldn't wear, I wouldn't hike up my pants as high. You know what I'm saying? I uh, think you would. I don't think I'd hike up my pants as high, and I don't think I'd keep my tires short. I think you would just be consistently in a zoot suit uh, the entire time. You'd even sleep in a zoot suit. <laughs> <laughs> zoot suit, Ryan. Ryan! <laughs> <laughs> I am wondering, like, how would we actually dress if we live back in the day and we're in a spoiler elevator? I mean, like, uh, I have no idea. I th- I do think we, we would be fans of the fedora hat. Maybe. I definitely think so. I think you would learn to tap dance. I think you... <laughs> <laughs> I think you would be a suspender man. <laughs> I am a suspender man. I know. I, I'm, I'm just saying. I, th- I think you would be even more so back in the day, Steve. The only thing I wouldn't be is a bow tie. I still don't see where the bow tie fits. I might be able to pull off a bow tie. You, I might be able to. I might be able to. But see, but people, when they tie their ties now, like the regular tie, the knots are fat, and I like them. I give you see, I was paying attention to everybody's knots in the movie. The knots were really small. Not to be confused with nuts. Yep. I wasn't paying attention to anybody's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Save for the trail mix. <laughs> well, we have arrived at the spoiler floor, so we want to give you guys a heads up that if you haven't seen the movie yet, we encourage you to please go check out this film because um, you, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I think that that you will be very pleased with it. We certainly don't want to ruin the experience for you. Probably uh, very cheap on Amazon, though. If you want to go pick up this movie to make a nice dish sure. collection, I'm saying that right there. Exactly. <laughs> Let's get started with the cast and crew. Huh. So... What did you think of Kevin Spacey's performance as Jack Vincent? Kevin Spacey, it's funny how Kevin Spacey acts pretty much the same with just light variations. He he kind of does, doesn't he? Yeah, but it, but it kind of works. Like Kevin Spacey is not typecast no. at all, but no. he, he but he acts the same in every movie. <laughs> it's just kind of odd. Like you're like, I loved him in Minority Report, but he acted the same. Wait, he's not a minority reporter, is he? No, no I'm, I'm sorry, not mar- margin call. I was thinking oh. minority. I was looking at the cover <laughs> in my head of Minority Report, and then I was thinking margin the call. The cover you see, like, Kevin Spacey next to Tom Cruise. You're yeah. like, what? <laughs> Can you have predicted this before the market fell? Really? <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah. need, we need some of those gadgets. It's interesting. Be, uh, yeah, I think you bring up a good point about that. Um, when I think of the usual suspects, I do think he he was more of a departure in that because he had a bit more of a non-assuming, timid type of, of character that he was performing with the whole Kaiser Soze thing. But yeah, I, I think by and large, even when you think of House of Cards, um, you know, he, he he changes up his accent to reflect whatever character that he's portraying or whatever. But I do think that 
Spacey's style of acting is one that can be plugged into a lot of different roles. And I think, like you said, it's almost like he has like a, a lever or something when it comes to his acting where he can just adjust certain aspects of it and then just fits. It just, it works right in there. Not to say that he's a chameleon actor because I don't necessarily, I wouldn't describe his acting style as a chameleon actor, but to your point, I think that he is the type of actor where you can really, you, you can plop him in a lot of, of different types of movies in that regard. What did you think of Russell Crowe as Bud White? I liked Bud White. Um, he, so R Russell Crowe has that. Well, okay. Russell Crowe is, is also kind of like this strong silent type in almost every movie, except for maybe Gladiator. But he, anyway, he was kind of strong silent type in Gladiator too. But um, I liked uh, him, him and, and, and this movie, he, he has that he's in your face without being in your face. Like there are scenes where he walks up to somebody just to be intimidating and he doesn't even have to like <gasps> fix somebody else. I'm going to paint you really close. Mm -hmm. You know, just, <laughs> he could just take a few steps and you know, like just by the look in his eyes, yeah, like it's going to get ugly fast without grimacing, without trying to be, you know, spooky or anything. Yeah, it's it's amazing how his physical performance exuded that big time. Because Russell Crowe also, I don't believe he's that tall of a guy in real life. I mean, I, I think I don't think he's short necessarily, but I don't think he's, you know, six foot or six foot one or something like that. I think he's probably around like five, nine, somewhere should, around there, maybe. Should I ask Siri? Uh, no, don't worry. It's, it's not that important. <laughs> But no, I, I do think that that is a good point that you bring up with regards to the physical performance because of the fact that, yeah, like, it, again, it's it's more of that subtle nuance where you don't have him shoving the fact that he's a tough guy in your face. It's these little things that you almost like instinctively, you know, by your gut kind of pick up. Like his character is someone that if you were to meet on the street, there's a certain zone that you wouldn't go into with that guy because you know that he would probably lose his temper and he'd probably mess you up. Probably breaking kneecaps. Uh, probably something like that, yeah. Guy Pierce, who was Ed Exley. Yeah. Guy Pierce, what he needs to do, if there's ever a movie about the life of Val Kilmer, it would be played by... Guy Pierce. Really? I look at Guy Pierce and I see Val Kilmer. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I I would not have pegged him in that, but <laughs> you don't see Val Kilmer in him? I mean, I maybe just a little bit, but like Guy Pierce to me, Guy Pierce is Guy Pierce. I I've followed huh. his career since the days of Memento. I think that was the first role I ever saw him in and I didn't know who this person was and I thought it was really cool. And Guy Pierce is, uh, again, he's one of those types of actors where he's just, he's, his acting style is Guy Pierce. But there is something that, that I think is alluring about how he portrays his characters. I think it's, it's, it's neat to be able to watch him. Um, you know, he was in Iron Man three. Right. He, um, and so, it, you know, again, I think that there are certain, Types of you know now that you say Val Kilmer, I I could kind of get there. I'm now that I'm thinking about the different roles I've seen him in. I'm not totally there <laughs> like you, but like I mean the little little, little aspect, sure. a little Ice Man from Top Gun. Come on, Russ. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, it was it was really fun to see him in a role like this. What was interesting too is that both Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce are Australian, so for them to be playing. 
American police officers from the 1950s, it was a bit interesting to me to to find out that. I I mean, we've found out that Russell Crowe was Australian uh, <laughs> right. probably after Gladiator, I would say, which was, I think that film came out in 2000, if I'm not mistaken. Gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> Supposed to be Spanish, but I, I don't know. I just don't see it. Yeah, he's he's known as the Spaniard, but he has an Australian <laughs> accent. What's happening? And he's from Rome. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you call cosmopolitan. Oh boy. So after Guy Pierce, I also would like to talk about James Cromwell, who was Dudley Smith. He was the the police chief or police captain. Yeah. Whoever. Um, you know, he's an actor that we don't see very often in film, but when you do, he definitely has screen presence. He he, the, like the different roles that he plays are just these perfect niche type of, of roles that that I don't think anyone else could play but him. I think he's either the the really good guy or the really bad guy. Yes. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Opposite ends of that spectrum. I haven't, at least for me, I have not seen a film where he's middle of the road or whatever. He, yeah, you're, you're very right. He plays, he tends to play, I'll say that, one side or the other in that regard. Kim Basinger, who played uh, Lynn Bracken, she was so good. And it, it makes sense that she was one of the, the um, Oscar winners yeah. from 1997. I think she won Best Supporting Actress, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Uh, is either best actress or best supporting actress? She, she actually, you know what? She's probably got best actress. Because I would say so, okay, we we can look it up, Rose. Well, it's probably supporting actress. What do you think? Well, because who? What other female actors were um, were in L.A. Confidential? I mean, she was like the main yeah female actor in there, and and um, yeah, every all the other females that I can remember, they had kind of more bit parts, yeah, small parts. Yeah. But Kim Basinger has like the classic look. Yes. Like if I was going to fill that role for somebody, she would be the top of the list. Yeah. She has a, a, um, a look that is perfect for this type of like 1950s era, almost like a, a noir, like film noir-ish type of, of thing. She fits that bill perfectly. But also aside from her appearance, I would also say too that her acting style fits it really well. And I think that when it came to her performance with this, again, lots of, of, of how she delivered her lines and even her, like, like her, her physical acting was very understated once again, but yet again, there's this kind of instinctual response that I, as a movie viewer had um, when there were certain scenes that were being played out. And again, it wasn't like, you know, she wasn't like throwing herself at the camera like, oh, look at me. You <laughs> I can be singer. Yeah, it's, it's not like that at all. It's, it, it, <laughs> and so it was cool because I, I appreciated the, the, com, the complex layers that were there that it was, you could tell the director had fun almost peeling back those layers in a doling out kind of fashion where he didn't want to reveal everything about all the characters right up front. He, he was having fun playing with them and having them cross weave with each other and seeing how the relationships kind of uh, got formed with these different characters. Danny DeVito was Sid Hudgens. He was kind of the, uh, almost like the 1950s version of the paparazzi in a way, but he had kind of the, well, not the paparazzi paparazzi just trying to sell pictures. He's, he's like, Kind of snuff. Uh, no, no, I mean, no, it's not even snuff. What, what is it like? A 
How would you describe it? Because, I mean, he did report stuff that actually happened, but he was obviously setting up a lot of this stuff in order for him to be able to sell more of his papers. Maybe like the Inquirer or like the Sun or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. More uh, gossip-oriented. Right. Yeah, definitely. And Danny DeVito is another one. You know, when when I watched this film, I forgot how young he was in that film as well because i we've seen films like dumbo for instance that yeah. he was in and he is noticeably older and, and shorter <laughs> shorter <laughs> but when it came to a film like this danny devito was definitely in his heyday in the 90s you know if you think of batman returns that was in 1992 twins. i think twins is actually the late 80s yeah late 80s. twins i think it was late 80s uh, but he's had a, a very prolific career playing many different characters. I would actually peg Danny DeVito as more of, of a chameleon actor over some of the other actors that he that he played with in uh, the usual or the usual suspects. L.A. Confidential. <laughs> what did we see last <laughs> night? What did we watch? was some sort of yeah. film from the nineties. I know Spacey was in it. Did you like his performance in L.A. Confidential? You know, it was fine, but I, personally, I didn't think he stood out. I mean, he. He Danny DeVito to me is kind of Danny DeVito and everything. He he does he he. I don't see him as a as a chameleon actor. Like if if you see Danny DeVito acting like the the circus leader in, um, Dumbo. Uh, I don't know. I went well maybe Dumbo, but I was thinking also um, Big Fish. Big Fish is what I was thinking of. See, yes, I, I'm kind thank of a, you for saying that. I would have been stammering for five minutes. I am a Danny DeVito fan. That's why I can rattle these off. So if you if you see the way he speaks in those movies, and then you go to this movie, he's like the same person. Yeah, I, I could see how there there are certain similarities to various roles that he's played for sure. And I think that that that's kind of the result of like how unfortunately sometimes actors will get typecast to a certain extent into certain roles because they're just so good at those roles. Right. And I think there's probably conversations that happen where they say, oh, you know, I loved your when your performance in this particular film. Can you bring some of that into what we're doing here? It doesn't have to be a hundred percent, but bring like 50% of it or something. Right. And so then you're seeing more of that. And um, so anyway, uh, one last person from the cast that I wanted to also talk about was um, David Strathern, uh, who played Pierce Patchett. Right, yes. He's, he's always playing kind of smaller roles. Or at he, least I've seen him in stuff where he's only been smaller. Yeah, like I, I'm the same way, where like I've seen him in more of the supportive acting roles, but I like the types of roles that he plays. He always fits that role very well. And like I think, wasn't he in The Rocketeer? I know he was in a, I don't think he was in the Rocketeer. He was in a league of their own. Uh he was like the, the, the businessman who was always talking to Tom Hanks and was like, you know, they were trying to get yeah, stuff and, going. And he was also he played in one of the later seasons in The Sopranos. I think around season four, season oh. five. <laughs> there you go. For some reason I thought he was in the Rocketeer, but maybe I was mistaken. But you know what character he could play if ever there was a documentary? Ernest P. Worrell. No, oh, he yeah, can't. I could. Come on. I don't know how on earth. <laughs> like, okay, if he shaved his mustache, maybe. Right. May, like, I, you can see it. If he put on like this, the, the, the tan ball cap and the jeans, like vest and the gray shirt, he would be he like, he could do it. He would be Ernest's younger brother or something. Like the guy is, <laughs> yeah. I think he's, he's more petite than, uh, 
Ernest was. Yeah, a little camera trick stuff, you know, Russ. You know, we work out a little bit, you'll be fine. Uh, pivoting over to the director, who's Curtis Hansen. Ah, Curtis was the, the director also of Eight Mile with Eminem. Mm, yeah, and Kim Basinger was in that as well. Yeah, she was. And I, I actually thought that movie was uh, really well done. And he's he's done a number of, of other films as well. But I, you could tell. I think I think at least up until now, anyway, I feel as though L.A. Confidential really was kind of like one of his, if not the magnum opus of his directing career. I just, I feel like there was more of a passion project vibe that I got from this particular film. And he just, he really knew what he wanted to do. Not, not like as if he didn't know what he wanted to do with other films that he's done, but this one had such a clear cut vision moving forward. And you could feel that as if you were going through, like there wasn't any kind of, well, was he trying to do this or was he trying to do that? Like, I, I really feel like, like this was, I mean, he, he was the absolute captain of this ship. And um, so kudos to him for sure. Another person I think is, is worth um, talking about with regards to the, to uh, LA confidential from a cruise standpoint was the uh, cinema photographer. His name is uh, Dante Spinotti and he has done work on LA confidential. The last of the Mohicans ah! heat Ant, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Ooh. X-Men, Last Stand, uh-huh. The Insider. The Insider. That was another movie with Russell Crowe. Exactly. So um, big fan of his work. And it's it's. I chose those to list. There, there are many others, but those were interesting to me because if you think about how the lighting was set up in those films, those are very different lighting scenarios. Yeah. It's not like, oh, that looks just like this other one or the other 10 that I've seen him do. Those are all very different in terms of, of how they did the lighting setup and even some of the framing of the shots. So really, really cool. Steve, uh, could you please give us a synopsis of the plot? So basically you have a police force uh, set nowhere else than LA, the uh, city of angels and, uh, and Hillis. And uh, so they're, they want to make a good image of themselves, right? But you see what happens is that it, cops, not they, I'll say people of power can sometimes be corrupted. And what happens is you have a few different cops who have seen things a different way from their perspective. All everyone's trying to get rich. Everybody's trying to get popular on their own means. And everyone's trying to get away with a little something, something. Mm. It only takes the right person to put the pieces together and figure out the puzzle and maybe stir water that shouldn't be stirred. Mm. How was that in a nutshell? Oh, uh, well, that was kind of the setup. But, okay, uh, well, I can't give away the whole entire movie. Well, well, not, I mean, we're in spoiler territory now. We're, we're assuming they've seen the movie, Steve. <sighs> okay, well, you want to jump in? You want me to jump in? A summary of the plot, oh, Steve. Geez. You got to like uh, the end of Act One. Yeah, well, I guess I'll just do a summary. So, anyhow, so you have one guy who's liking the fame, you have one guy who's liking the power, and you have one guy who's liking the righteousness. Mm-hmm. Okay? Very so, good, Steve. Anyhow, they, and, and that's basically all their motivation for doing what they do and getting along or not getting along with all of their peers and the police, D-E-P-T. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyhow, corruption goes from the bottom to the top, 
And um, the sometimes when you're putting a puzzle piece together, Russ, you just don't like how the puzzle comes out. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you're like, "Why are these pieces here? Why is that little part of the picture there? It doesn't make any sense, and I don't like it. I want to throw it away." And that's uh, kind of what happens, Russ. So one event leads to another, and all of a sudden, there's uh, all these ironic twists and turns, and um, they have the patience to put it all together, and it turns out that um, people that you would think be all high and mighty aren't so high and mighty. Well, maybe high, just not mighty. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. I do think um, one of the things about this plot that I find so infatuating is that it has an exploration of city politics. And it's not just exclusive to LA, but also, I mean, this can be applied to Anywhere. Yeah, sure. And I think it's it's interesting because on the one hand, you have like the more of the federal nationwide level of politics. And then if you go um, into more of like a, a microscope and you look at any given town or city, it is really interesting to me to watch and see how these things play out and how unfortunately they are pretty prevalent no matter where you go. And I think that that in this type of scenario where it is the 1950s, which again, we were not alive back then. So I think we're both very interested and, and fascinated by that time period. And then you combine that with some of the uh, cultural issues that were going on back in the day, as well as the, the political issues. And it's weird because you almost get drawn into this, the, the city's politics with the actions taking place in kind of a gossipy kind of way, like, oh, did you hear so-and-so did what? Oh, wait, oh, did you hear about what? And I think um, you're disgusted by it, but yet you want to know more. You want to hear more. And I think that there is kind of this machine uh, that is comprised of all these different folks who are basically the cogs in the machine. And I think that's part of what makes the, a film like this so riveting because you see people in these positions that supposedly the public revere. They think that these are people of high moral standing and character and stuff. And then as more and more gets revealed, you realize, man, like there are skeletons in closets. There are evil deeds, evil doers. Well, I also, I think where it's that, that branches off is I think this, it also shows the, the extreme weaknesses that some people have. Oh, yeah, the vices, yeah. Oh, the vices. I mean, you had some of the cops who were just, you know, down and like they couldn't get away from the alcohol Dirty cops, and, yeah. or the drugs or you had someone who was addicted to fame and that's all they wanted out of life. Um, you had other people who are addicted to power. Um, you had other people who um, would sacrifice all to do the right thing, but sometimes doing the right thing by the book isn't isn't what's going to get you ahead or get it solved. Um, it's interesting. Sometimes it's women. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that there are... Like, like the vices themselves are kind of timeless in that regard where it doesn't matter what time period you live in, those are kind of the tried and true flaws of humanity. But it is interesting to see the context of when those things transpired within those different time uh, time zones or time areas. What do you call them? Just, just eras. 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 Well, eras. Eras. It's like, yeah. Not arrows. No. Not to be confused. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, it, you know, like in this situation with the 1950s, you had a rapidly evolving culture, right? Like the industrial age was was raging at that point and the uh, end of World War II had occurred. This was taking place in the early 1950s, which arguably was probably one of the most, uh, I guess, beneficial times of the United States. I mean, the economy was roaring. 
you had a lot of um, aggressive expansion into Great all kinds cars. of markets and no. stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot of yeah, 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 land, yeah. a plenty, and opportunity, that sort of thing. But at the same time, there were certain things that just didn't have enough oversight, really. And not to say that that it's it's any better today necessarily, but I do think that they were just these glaring issues that were going on. I mean, like the the notion of like having these police officers that were just, I mean, on the job drinking and stuff. I mean, it was way more prevalent back in the day where, you know, if that happened, uh, I would I would hope in most if not all of the police stations in today's world, you get fired right away. Yeah. You can't drink on the job. But back then it was more acceptable. Right. So things like that, I feel helped really kind of bring this whole thing to life. And so getting back to the plot, to your point, so you have these three different types of personas with, um, you know, Guy Pierce's character, Kevin Spacey's character and Russell Crowe's character. And, so it gets involved in this kind of string of events that go on where you realize that there are people in power who have connections to folks who you wouldn't think would be connected to and or maybe um, due to certain involvements, it brings other players or parties into the mix. And so then it's, it's almost like you can see how as the, like point A gets to point B and gets to point C and D and you see the spider web emerging, how um, things quickly get, get uh, pretty intense. Yeah. So um, when it comes to different aspects of the film, um, I really liked how the film, I don't know, like, like the way that, that they started presenting certain things. Like, like if you recall, there's a, there's a moment where, Bud White is with his partner and they're getting alcohol for the precinct, uh-huh. right? Again, that's kind of like, a, what are you doing? And that's when he first um, meets Kim Basinger's character and then meets the girl who's in the car with uh, um, what appears to be perhaps maybe she was uh, um, physically abused or something. But then he comes to realize that it's plastic surgery. And then I don't know, like it's it's cool how they go about this and how even like the the bodyguard slash driver of like kind of the, the playboy. I don't even know like what his job title is. But um, he plays a a huge pivotal role uh, despite him only being on screen for just a few minutes. Yeah. And that was, that's just the start of it. And it goes into um, the, the awful uh, prison scene that was going on and how that gets out of hand. And then you see how the, how the station and and the city council are trying to cover up this horrible thing because they're trying to paint the paint the good image on the press or with the press. Well, yeah, they they had this, this, um, campaign to really make the LA police department like this, this beacon of light and hope and <laughs> to the rest of the precinct inspiration. The yeah. 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 And so they, they were going through this whole thing. And so it's, it's interesting because that's kind of at more of a higher level, but then when you drill down into it, then you see, okay, with these types of character archetypes that they've created, how does this all play out? And so, um, really, really fun ride. I, I would say. I would so let me ask you something. So when you think back when this movie was first released, mm-hmm. how come you don't think it was as popular as Titanic? Well, so Titanic was a, a an achievement unto its own. I mean, it, oh, sure. it, it was yeah, it was yeah, yeah. A, a great film. Yeah. I, I think that the sense of scale with like Titanic itself was such a huge film 
that I, I would argue it was probably on the same tentpole scale as like a Star Wars or uh, Indiana Jones or, you know, Lord of the Rings, right? Like you, you um, not necessarily in terms of like how the plot went, but just in terms of the, the amount of anticipation that was going on, the, the level of special effects. Cause I mean, the, the, the visual effects sure. in that film for its time, no one had ever seen that before. It was, it was very uh, <laughs> impressive to say the least, but also too, I think, Titanic really took over the female audience because they absolutely adored the relationship between um, Jack and Rose in the film. And they, they just, I, I mean, I know my girlfriend at the time, she saw that movie. I don't even know how many times. So I think it was one of those things where it just ate up all the attention. I, I, cause I, I, I remember the movie being out at the same time, but I don't even remember the, the preview. And I went, <clears throat> <laughs> and I swallow Steve swallow <laughs> so anyhow I showed my wife the trailer uh, last night I'm like hey we're gonna talk about this movie tonight and <laughs> so she's like yeah I want to see the trailer and so I showed her the trailer and the trailer is like nothing to be I mean, you could pass by it like any, any. Oh, bit. the trailers of the nineties were, are nowhere near as but, crazy cool as today. I know, but like the trailer for Titanic was much more appealing. And there was other movies where the trailers were good too. Plus you had the movie guy voice. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> anyway, so she watches, I show her the, the trailer of the movie and her first reaction, oh, that's, that looks boring. And I thought, Oh, okay. Um, I wonder how many other people thought spoken like a millennial. <laughs> I wonder how many other people at the time thought this movie looks boring. But the trailer does, doesn't really do the movie that much justice. And I almost think that the movie you have to be almost in this mood for like this the, a psychological you know cop thriller, and it almost fits the mold too perfectly. Where you can't just like sit down and watch it like confidential. Like you can almost sit down and watch maybe Titanic or another movie. But L.A. Confidential would have more of a lasting appeal in my mind than Titanic. Titanic was more of a movie that like had beautiful images. Like I could almost care less for you know all the actors and what they said and everything. I mean, it was it was a it was a pretty good movie. But I've never really been drawn to go see it more or or the other times. I mean, it's come on cable and I've oh, I've seen Titanic and not only once or twice, three times, four, five hundred times. Um, not even close. But I almost see it just for the richness of the picture versus, oh man, these characters and the script and the cinematography. I mean, I, I, I almost just see it for the, the richness of the pictures and that's about it. But LA Confidential didn't have necessarily the richness in, in the picture, but it had everything else. Yeah, LA Confidential was much more story centric. It was much more. That, that's why I, I was talking about the quality of the writing because they don't have special effects to fall back upon. They don't have those kind of grandiose scenes. It's very much more of a character driven film. Right. In fact, like for instance, the movie Snatch is another example that I feel shares certain parallels to a film like LA Confidential in that sense where you don't have visual effects in Snatch. It's predominantly a film that has a lot of great actors who completely embrace their roles. And you're, you are just told this fantastic story that is very character driven. You know, 
That was another movie, by the way, that I told you to go see, and I'm glad you did. No, we saw it in the theater together. No. I saw it first in college with my script writing teacher and uh, Nate Agello, actually. And then I came home and said, you've got to see this movie. Yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, when it came to Titanic, though, Titanic was... I I, I really do think that marketing plays a big role in that, too, where, like, how the trailers are put together, who are they trying to appeal to? I think in, in terms of LA Confidential, they were trying to appeal to the, the, the younger folks of the nineties. But at the same time, they wanted to also appeal to the senior citizens who were young folks in the fifties. So I think when it came to that, maybe there were some decisions that were made, or, but I, I just got to say, like when it comes to like, captivating trailers that get people excited. Oh, I want to see that. Yeah. I mean, James Cameron is, <laughs> yeah. is a master of that. I mean, when you think of the films that he's done, I mean, the abyss terminator Two, aliens, Titanic. I mean, he, he is the type of director who has a crew that knows how to generate that type of excitement. Or at least he did. I don't know about those later movies, right? <clears throat> Are you talking about avatar or <laughs> well, avatar and the latest like terminator? Yeah. Well, okay, so he didn't direct the latest Terminator. He just produced it. Oh, he just produced it. Okay, my bad, bro. Well, he was in charge of a lot of stuff. That's his baby. (laughs) That's his metal skeleton baby. What would you think of the... uh, If you were going to say this movie had a theme, Russ, what would would the theme be? For LA Confidential? No, the Terminator. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, (laughs) LA LA Confidential. We're we're talking about a lot of different movies. Yeah, we've completely digressed (laughs) off of our topic of the day. Uh, what theme? I, well, film noir is one that is the type of style, but theme itself, I mean, it, it's a cop drama. You know, it, it's it's the type of film where you are, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it, it's exclusive to like a hero's journey, but I, I do think it it is more of a, 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 just kind of an examination really of justice versus... Well, righteous justice versus corrupt justice. I think that that when it comes to the film itself, you know, one of the things that I thought was really great was how Guy Pierce's character, Ed, was talking about his dad. And that was one of the, the, the most uh, poignant moments of the movie because he is at that point describing why he got into being a police officer in the first place. And he talks about how his father was an officer and how he was killed and how he never knew who the, the killer was. They never caught the killer. He didn't even know what the killer looked like. In fact, he, as a way to try and personify his father's killer, he just made up a name called Rolo Tomasi. And ever since then, he wanted to become a cop to be able to um, give justice to the victims who were like his father, who had um, attackers or predators or whoever they were, criminals basically that thought that they could get away with it. And he wants to catch those people. And I think that that, that was probably part of the, the central kernel of this entire film. You know, I, I think that what that, that moment was, was kind of what the whole film uh, was setting up and what, what it was all about. I would, so I would, I would agree with that. I, I would say when I was, Thinking about it, I was as I was about to pass out at the end of the movie when I was going to bed. I was coming to the question of, or maybe just a more of a statement of the right thing, doing the right thing versus doing the right thing versus doing the right thing for you. 
You mean selfishness versus selflessness? Yeah, maybe selflessness versus... But so, like, with Ed's character... Taking the higher road versus taking the lower road? Possibly. No, not silly. Not, uh, no, uh. not necessarily that, that extent. But let's just say we go back to Ed's character. So, Ed is willing to be the snitch, right? He sees he sees what's going on in the he, department with that early fight, and he's like, look, this is the right thing. I was trying to make, put a stop to it. I was commander or, or watch commander. He's, he, uh, he's kind of the stiff of the lot. He's, he's the stiff. He's the golden boy. He's the golden boy. So, you know, the, so he's willing to rat out all the cops just to, for lack of a better term, train the swamp. <laughs> Do I dare say that? Well, no, I mean, or, he, he, he was in it for political gain. He wanted to be able to ascend the ranks quickly because of his main motivator was power. He wanted his, well, actually, and they all had power in their own way, but his version of power right. was to be able to get promoted as quickly as possible to become, you know, a high-ranking officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just be so, in charge and have all the glory. And basically, maybe we should say what happened in the beginning, which is that, there, there were yes, there was a Christmas party, but they, they the cops made an arrest of some individuals who, on they were under the impression that these specific guys had killed officers of their precinct. Right, and so being all liquored up, they thought, well, well, they, they, they didn't kill them. They were like at the hospital and they were injured and stuff. And then, as part of the misdirection, um, some of the drunk officers had had heard through the grapevine that, that, they, that they were a lot worse off than they actually were. Oh, okay. So then that's what stoked all the drunken officers to get mad and want to dish out some payback because they thought their buddies were like at death's door when right. in fact they actually weren't that bad. Right. So they all go downstairs to the, the, the jail cell area and before they lock him up and put him in the cell and, you know, keep him there for as long as they're going to be incarcerated, they, the cops are A-OK with dishing out some vigilante justice and, you know, just beating the, the junk out of these guys. And so Ed is trying to stop it, but he's one man against an army at that point, And he just gets th- locked into a room and the cops have it out. And so that's where this whole thing happens is because the press was there trying to have a nice article for Christmas Christmas, and let's interview the cops and, you know, the LAPD is fantastic and here we go. But uh, they see all this, the stampede downstairs to dish out this justice, quote unquote. And so they get some pictures and then the story is out. And so now they're trying to do damage control. And so they're in like the commissioner's office or the, the, the attorney Attorney General. General's office yeah. or something like that. And they're, they're basically looking for ideas of what, what how are we going to prosecute this? How are we going to make it go away? You know, who's going to fall on the sword? Well, essentially, yeah. How are we going to cover this up? How are we going to cover how this up? How are we going to do damage control? And so Ed is basically saying, well, here's my roadmap to it. You take all the people who who were directly involved in and in, inciting in the violence and you get rid of them and you prosecute them. You take them to court. I mean, it's, you know, that, that striking the gavel down as hard as you can. But it wasn't just, it wasn't like limited to just wanting to dish out justice. He was doing it for professional gain. True. Yes, he was. But, but the thing is, okay, so what's right for him is kind of blurred with what the right thing to to do is. Like, so you, you, some of the cops that were beating on these guys, I mean that, yeah, that's not the right thing to do. You got to follow a code. Uh, <laughs> you can't just beat yes, on anybody because it's illegal. A, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> just because you have a, a baton and you you have somebody chained up, can't you know? You just can't go beating on people. So that's that's wrong. But it's also wrong to um, you know, criminalize somebody more for the crimes that they actually did, just for your political gain or career or career gain. 
So anyway, that's Ed, right? Doing the right thing for him versus doing the right thing or that that should be done. And then you have Spacey's character. <laughs> I can't remember all the names. This is a movie where like you got to pay attention to the names and write them down. And so you have Spacey's character. Jack Vincent. Jack Vincent. Vincent. Vin- Vincent. 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 Yes. Like, Just I'm call gi- him Jack. I'm, I'm giving Jack. <laughs> Vincente. Jack giving your two cents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have him who doesn't want to get his hands dirty yeah. whatsoever. He just wants to play it up for the camera. He wants to play it up for the celebrityism. He, he's he, interested in the fame. He's just interested in the fame whatsoever. And he and there's a scene where he just forgets why he even became a cop. And yeah. I thought that was like, wow, that is really telling. Yeah, that was that was a moment of clarity. Exactly. And so he's doing the right. He's his he's doing the right thing for him, which is still kind of putting cop, you know, not cops away, but the bad people away. But he's setting the whole thing up so that he can get the most out of it again. But then it, but it, then he gets to real, the realization that, and when he's in that bar and he's got tipped like 50 bucks due at whatever he was going to do. And it was basically trying to frame the, the attorney general. Well, that, that 50 bucks was, was for that, that young kid actor who they were going to set up with the attorney general and then have the, the whole bust in thing happen. So that was supposed to happen at midnight and he had a guilty conscience as a result. And so right. he ended up leaving the $50 at the bar right. and going ahead of time early before midnight to bail the kid out. But it was too late. Yeah. So had he done the right thing, he could have, you know, at the time that he, it should have happened. He could have saved another life or not even set somebody else up in the first place. He knew what was going to happen from the get go. And he starts to struggle with that as the movie plays forward. But um, by the way, you remember who that kid that that kid was in Margin Call? He was like one of the higher ups. Oh my gosh, I think remember? you're right. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> he was like the, one, Man, the, one of the he, people he called in with the old like you know thousand dollar suits on. Yeah, yeah, he was just a puppy in this film. I know. It took me a minute to figure that out. I'm like, I know I've seen that guy somewhere. Um, and so then you have Bud White, who's at his only motivation, which I'm sure a lot of guys can get behind is, you know, since he saw his dad beat on his mom when at a very young age, beat her to death with a tire iron. I mean, he, his motivation is putting, I mean, anytime he sees a domestic disturbance or a damn and, and disparate damsel and damsel, I'm trying to say it. Words in my brain don't necessarily go hand in hand. <laughs> when he sees a lady Dungeons getting and hurt. Dragons. Wait, no, D-O-D, <laughs> Dodge, 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 car. I need to go test drive. <laughs> so, <laughs> Forza Horizon. <laughs> what are we talking about here? So anyway. Um, Moosehead. <laughs> he's just trying to, but I mean, so the captain plays on, on that motivation to make him make Bud make um, Bud White, the officer, Officer uh-huh. White, yep. be his tough guy cop all the time, and man, and so he's not doing the right thing. What 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 is his right thing actually? Because he was he almost didn't really have. He was just trying to put people away, but are you, are he you, had, you talking about Bud White? Yeah, he no Bud Light. Don't, you mean? You, well, you I, should, I didn't know who, party if you're still talking about Bud White. <laughs> Well, Bud, Bud White was the muscle, right? Like, he was the muscle, he, yeah. He was the kind of guy, he was like a bulldog. He was loyal. He had a very simplistic view of dealing out justice. He wasn't in it for the political gain or the career advancement. He also wasn't in it for the fame and fortune like Jack was. He was just, he found a job that he was really good at doing. And I think at an unconscious 
maybe somewhat conscious level, it was his way of being able to, to prevent the same fate that happened to his mom. And so I think that being in the line of, of police work, he's doing that. But also, too, I don't think he had some sort of necessarily strict moral code. I think that his temper was really um, his flaw, but also kind of his instrument of, of how he should conduct himself. Because when he was level-headed and cool, he was by the book. Right. When, he, when, it, when he lost his temper, that was when he was a, a bull in a china cabinet. So you had to really kind of watch yourself around him. But I think what was interesting was how you had Dudley Smith, who was the police chief, who, you know, again, he was the the master of manipulation. He knew all of these different characters' vices, their shortcomings and whatnot, and he played on them for his own advantage. And that's why when you get toward the end of the film, you realize the police chief is the mastermind. He's the one who is behind all this stuff that's going on, including even... Um, doing the, 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 the crime ring within LA as well, being largely in charge of uh, the drugs that are being moved around and the people who are getting off and everything else. I mean, th- that was, a uh, you know, I remember the first time seeing the movie, I was like, Oh, this is, this is messed up. Yeah. I, for, I, I forgot so many scenes out of this movie. I took me by a uh, surprise. Going back, I wanted to address the Rolo Tomasi thing. That was actually something that I picked up on this most recent time when we were watching the film. Because, I, I, again, there are so many characters in this movie and there are so many names that are being used and it's hard to keep up. You really have to pay attention. It's not one of those like popcorn movies where you can park your brain at the door. And I had heard them say that name because I'd seen it so many times. I figured it was one of the officers or someone. You know, just I'm like, I don't know which one that is. Well, now I understand, oh... That's Guy Pierce's character's father. Uh, well, not his father, but his father's killer, That the name that he came up with. And so, you know, when, when the police chief came to him after he was talking about how Jack was supposedly killed and they're going to try and find out who the killer is, and he asks him um, if the name Rolo Tomasi rings any bells and how you see the look of uh, horror uh, go across Guy Pierce's face because he, he has the only person he told that story to was Jack Vincennes, who is now dead. Um, so that that carries much more weight for me from a um, narrative standpoint of the film. When the, the, the storytelling is very palpable in those types of moments. What's your favorite part of the movie, Russ? Favorite part of the movie? That is difficult to say. I love all the different aspects of, of this film. I, it's interesting because the scenes themselves... It, it sounds kind of silly to say this out loud, but it's like the scenes play separately from each other. And I, what I mean by that is like when there is a, there's a scene break, it's like each chunk was so well done in its own way. Like I, it's one of those movies where I could literally go to any scene and just enjoy watching that scene for what it is because of the way it was set up through cinematography, through the acting, through, um, whatever kind of plot is being um, told or whatever, you know, being revealed. Yeah. It's very difficult to know for sure, which one would be my favorite. Cause I mean, there, there are scenes like I love when, um, uh, when Jack is, is talking to Sid, you know, and, and they have the, the young movie going guy or movie actor who's like trying to get back in on things and, and the, the banter going back and forth. 
uh, between them when they're on the, the the set of Badge of Honor or whatever. I think you know, it's a really fun scene. Or or even the the moment where Bud White walks in and sees um, Lynn, who's Kim Basinger's character, at the um, the I was gonna say bar, but it's it's more of a kind of a liquor, liquor store. shop, yeah. And having her, you know, a lot of the the first time reveals of these characters were great. I think that when it came to even scenes, you know, like the, the the liquor store scene later on when you see the the girl in the car, I think one of my favorite aspects of the scenes in this film is how they they are able to to make every shot alluring. Like you're like, oh, what's in there? Oh, what's going on here? What are those people talking about over there? What are they up to? And I like how it sucks you in like that. I like how you almost kind of want to become an investigator yourself or you're, you're like, you're, you're part of the force and you're wanting to find, you want to get to the bottom of whatever's going on kind of thing. And I like how, once again, it's done very subtly. So there's really not a particular scene that I like the most out of the rest of them. I, I mean, I love the scene when Bud White uh, gets in a fight with, uh, with Ed Exley and not only for like, like the, the physical altercation scenes, but also like the aftermath with them talking it out and like having these revelations, like again, all of those scenes carry a lot of, of quality drama. So, yeah, I would say that would be my favorite scene. I, I liked I, the thing is I, I saw for bad or for good, I saw a little bit of myself and all three of the main characters. And so, because I mean, who wouldn't want a little bit of fame, a little extra money or think that they're doing the right thing for themselves or for the right thing altogether. And I saw, I saw a little bit of myself in Kevin Spacey. I saw a little bit of myself in, um, oh, Vincent. I'm sorry. I'm going to stick to characters. Vincent. 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 <laughs> Jack, two cents, Vincent. Right. That guy and <laughs> Bud White and um, Ed Exley. She ran, right. Um, so, <laughs> so anyhow. I saw myself in Dudley Smith and uh, Kim Basinger's Lynn and uh, Sid Hutchins' Dan DeVito. But anyhow, so, I mean, if, if you saw any, like uh, a woman getting beat up by some random thug, you would want to go help her out, right? I mean, that would be like your instinctual reaction. I need to go save this girl. But your instinctual reaction would not just be like to beat the crap out of somebody to get just some answers to solve a riddle, you know, or you might get off on getting some fame, making a little bit extra money on the side because who wouldn't want their moment in the spotlight well, and or lastly, sorry, very good. who wouldn't want to accelerate their career a little bit because at the end of the day, I mean, we're working for something who wants to be at the low end of the totem pole for the rest of your life. You want to you want to grow in your career. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to add to that, that that's a testament to the quality writing. Because once again, they're taking concepts that are universal. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who you are or where you live, where you come from. Those are all things that are desirable by people. And in this film, those objects of desire are personified by these characters. So each character represents one of those vices that we all have. That's why there's mm-hmm. relatability with each one of those characters. Sure. Uh, so building up, I would say that that, that the, my favorite spot was after that, that they bud and Ed fought it out for the affections of Lynn, basically 
And well, actually, it wasn't even for the affections, really. It was um, Ed Exley, and that was a power move. Like that, that, that was true. once again, that was the ugly side of, of his vice, which right. was he wanted to be at the top. He was wanting for political gain and she was intentionally getting under his skin, using his vice against him to set him up to have that whole thing happen because um, Dudley Smith was wanting to get Bud White to kill him. Right, exactly. So, but that, that wasn't known at the time. Right. And at the time, it was just Bud White getting really upset because, you know, when well, he, he was jealous. He was, yeah, of course which was, I, he was pacing in the rain and everything. I was like, oh man, he's going to explode. <laughs> Anyhow, the, the moment of clarity is when they're, they exhaust themselves beating on each other and then they realize what's going on, what's happening. They have that, that shared, you know, in thought. And Bud asks Ed, you know, you've, you've built yourself up. Are you ready to tear it down? And Ed says, with a wrecking ball, and I, was, and I get goosebumps thinking about it because, yes, that's the right thing. I've, after all the vices and everything that's been going on back and forth, he's playing her, but he, she's playing him, whatever. What's that's going on? At the end of the day, they figure out what the right thing to do is, and they go for it full force, pedal to the metal. And um, well, it's, it's a rallying cry yeah, for the viewer because right. everybody wants their their heroes Correct. or anti-heroes to have a moment of truth. Right. And that's what it is. That That is the catalyst for them moving forward to actually right the wrongs that they know have been there and that perhaps they have turned a blind eye to or just tolerated. And, and finally, they were on the, the path of righteousness. Um. I want to move over to cinematography and special effects really quickly. I know I mentioned Dante Spinotti, um, but I wanted to also talk specifically about the lighting and framing of LA Confidential. What was interesting to me in terms of the lighting side of things is that it wasn't really lit as a traditional film noir style. And I don't think you've seen too many old black and white film noir type of uh, crime capers uh, in your day, but like there, the, to give you an idea, like a film noir tends to be a lot more about the, the deep blacks, the cast shadows, the highlights, the hot spots, and the way that those are cast all, um, on the actors and the scenes. And there, there's just, it's almost as if the lighting itself is a character. And I didn't notice that to be as prevalent in this film. In fact, it struck me as almost more of a naturalistic, it was very natural and contemporary lighting, which was surprising given the fact that this film takes place in the 50s. It's a it's a crime drama and it has elements that are very film noir-esque. In terms of the framing though, I mean like there are certain scenes that have kind of that film noir look. And there are, but there are other scenes that where it doesn't necessarily have that. And it's more of a um, indulgence of kind of the 1950s glamour. If you think about like whether it's, it's the cars or it's the, the real estate or whatever it is, um, as well as some of the, the more um, kind of taste of the lifestyle of the 50s. You know, the, the, it's amazing, like how much you can, you can communicate through how you frame any given shot. And I feel like that was it. Was that the same for you or? I would say so. Yeah. Okay. And the soundtrack is also something I've, I thought it was definitely worth, uh, worthy of mention. I have this soundtrack. I've owned it since 1997. It's by Jerry Goldsmith. 
Um, what was interesting about it was how the predominant instruments used are trumpets horns, yeah. and uh, piano. And they had a little bit of like some, um, I, I want to say like, like a bass guitar or, or something in there, but, no, but there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's, they had kind of almost like a very small hint of jazz. I was going to say mystery jazz, mystery jazz. Yeah. That was in there, but it was, it was mixed in with the, the, the piano and the horns. Um, and I think that that made for a very unique sound that I thought was perfect for LA confidential. I loved the setting and and you, and you can tell that there are certain things like when I think of Tim Burton's Batman, Danny Elfman did something that was a little similar in the sense where there, you had lots of horns, you had piano. There, there are certain um, tracks in the Batman soundtrack where the piano is very front and center. And it, and if you think about it, the the way the style of that particular film was very film noir. They had elements that were kind of almost like a 1950s ish kind of stuff that was fused with the, the kind of the 1980s as like a hybrid of sorts. But um, yeah, it it was it was worthy of mention because Jerry has always been known for that. Like like that kind of sound is used. Um, I would say to great effect with a lot of the films that he has scored, although the character of the sound art that he makes is very different depending on which film it is. But those are kind of like the, every, every composer has their signature sound. Like it doesn't matter if it's James Horner or James Newton Howard or John Williams, Danny Elfman, Alan Silvestri, they all have a signature sound, but then they, they massage it and they, they mutate it into something that actually works really, really well for, you know, a particular film. I would like to also make a quick mention of the costume design in LA Confidential. Ruth Myers was the costume designer. This film, and again, watching it especially in HD because uh, my DVD was, it was just your standard definition. <laughs> so it was great to actually see this film in HD quality. I really loved all of the outfits. I love the outfits of the police officers. I love the, the normal streetwear. I loved Kim Basinger's dresses. Um, again, that kind of that 1950s glamour was very much on display, but I also like too how, like if you were, were to look at like, say some of the pants or the jackets worn by like Bud White, for example, you can tell that like the threading on it was not as refined. It's way more basic. Yeah, it's way more basic. And and also, I think it's very accurate for that time period. We're like, you know, if, if you were to get a suit jacket today, if it's a, if it's, if it's well-made, it's, it's tailored. It, exactly. It's tailored. And also like the, the um, stitching and everything is very well refined and everything versus back then where like, I mean, I'm sure that you had good stitching back then, but you had to pay a lot of money for it. And I just appreciated the, the coarseness of some of the fabrics that were used and the patterns, um, the, the bow or not the bow, but the, the uh, neckties um, is something that, that was just, so funny to me in the fifties, how they, they wore intentionally shorter bow or I want to say bow ties, the neckties, they, they kind of like, they ended almost like where your chest ends and your stomach begins, as opposed to going all the way down to your belt line. I always thought that was kind of a goofy look, but in, in a weird way, it just, just kind of worked for the times. So anyway, worthy of mention on that. I also wanted to jump into movie trivia, courtesy of IMDb, Steve, unless you had anything else you wanted to say. 
No, go ahead, Rhett. Let me jump in. I have a number of these things I always get a kick out of this. At the time the film takes place, no building in Los Angeles was allowed to be taller than City Hall. So the cameras were placed at certain points so that any building taller than City Hall would not be seen. Nice. Uh, James Elroy uh, describes the character of Bud White. James Elroy, by the way, is the writer. He's the the one who he he's actually I, th- I think he's a novelist or something. He writes a bunch of stories, and I think L.A. Confidential is one that right. was adapted for the screen. Yeah. I uh, describes the character of Bud White as the biggest cop on the Los Angeles force, noting that he wasn't even six feet. Oh, there you go. Russell Crowe decided to move into an apartment so small that he had to duck to get into the doorways and could barely stand up. Russell Crowe said that this worked in making him feel like a giant by the time he came to the set of the shoot. Very nice uh, methodical acting right there. Curtis Hansen uh, did not want the film to be overly nostalgic, so he had cinematographer Dante um, Spinotti shoot it like a a contemporary film and use more naturalistic lighting than in, uh, in a classic film noir. He told... Spinotti and the film's production designer to pay great attention to period detail, but to then put it all in the background. According to Guy Pierce on the, the commentary, he attended a James Elroy one man show in the native Melbourne, Australia, uh, or excuse me, in his native Melbourne, Australia, while the film was in pre-production. Pierce notes that during a Q and a session following Elroy's performance, an audience member asked if any of Elroy's books could ever be adapted into film. Elroy replied that not only was LA confidential in pre-production, but two Australian natives, Pierce and Russell Crowe were cast in the film. The audience erupted into laughter thinking that Elroy was playing a wry joke on the audience by randomly naming two local actors and claiming they were cast in a big budget Hollywood film. Pierce, who was sitting in the audience, was mortified. It was only a year later that the audience learned that Elroy was, in fact, telling the truth. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Some of the close-ups of Guy Pierce's face in the scene where he and Russell Crowe get into a fight were shot four months after principal photography had ended. Much to Curtis, uh, yeah, Curtis Hansen's dismay, Pierce had shaved his head within the time span and had to wear a wig. During a Q&A session, Pierce referred to it as a very expensive wig and noted that in Australia, there is no concept of returning to shoot pickups several weeks or months later. So that scene where like, he gets in the fight with Russell Crowe and then he's sitting there in the, the, the mess talking and stuff, he's wearing a wig. Yeah. That's a pretty good wig. That's right. That is a pretty good wig. To pitch the movie to backers and later to explain his aesthetic ideas about it to various cast and crew members, Curtis Hansen put together a group of 18 period images illustrating different aspects of what he hoped to convey with the movie. These include the Welcome to Los Angeles postcard that's in the first shot of the movie, photos of tracked housing, orange groves, and the glamour shot of Veronica Lake are framed on Lynn Backer's or Bracker's, excuse me, I can't say it. Lynn Bracken's wall. Hansen also chose studio photos of two lesser-known 1950s actors um, to show Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe what he envisioned as models for the characters Ed Exley and Bud White. The film used 45 different locations to shoot. Hmm. 
LA Confidential is the third installment in James Elroy's LA Quartet series, mm. which I want to take a look at. I have not heard of this until looking at this, and I may have some good reading in my near future. Yeah. Jerry Goldsmith based the main motif of LA Confidential score on the main motif in Leonard Bernstein's score for On the Waterfront, which I don't think I've seen. Have you seen that? I've seen that. Okay. Mel Gibson was considered to play Bud White. Don't see it. Uh, I could maybe see it. a little bit. I could totally see that. Actually, on the waterfront, I saw that movie this year. Just no. Yes, earlier this year. Thank you very much. Oh. Lana Turner's private life posed a serious problem for the studios. Her eight marriages, my goodness, oh! were one element. Another was her relationship with Johnny Stompanato, who I believe was, was that guy in the, the bar. Who Russell Crowe uh, decided to crush his nuts in uh, one of the interrogation <laughs> scenes. Johnny No Johnson. This, <laughs> this film is set five years before Turner's most notorious incident during which Stompanato attacked her. Turner's daughter stabbed and killed him in defense of her mother. The trial and acquittal provided a great deal of gossip for several years to come. No doubt. And, you know, we're you and I are not really um, <laughs> in the... Uh, the Hollywood elite uh, gossip of the 50s, so I don't know who that is. We'll have to do some research on Lana Turner. Kevin Spacey had a great deal of difficulty playing dead. It was easy enough for him to stare straight ahead when there was an actor or actress in front of him, but his first instinct was to follow James Cromwell with his eyes when he moved. He had to ask a production assistant to draw a circle for him at which to look on the opposite wall. That was fun little uh, trivia there. <laughs> it's so much easier to play alive than dead. <laughs> Stop moving. <laughs> You're not moving, I'm moving. Many of the events in the movie were based upon real events. These include the bloody Christmas scene where drunken police officers brutally beat up Hispanic prisoners suspected of beating up two uniformed cops. The real-life cops involved were named Trojanowski and Brown Brownson. In the film, they referred to as... Um, Helenowski and Brown. Oh, I see what they did there. <laughs> the plot line of real life gangster Mickey Cohen's arrest, touching off a gang war for control of the rackets, the LAPD goon squad, which would kidnap out of town gangsters, beat them up and threaten to kill them. If they ever tried to come back to set up their operations, Lana Turner dating gangster, Johnny Stompanato. Uh, although the movie is set in 1953 and the real Turner and Stompanato didn't start dating until 1957. In real life, Turner's daughter, Cheryl Crane. Um, oh, yeah, we, we, we've already got, covered that part. Curtis Hansen received a great deal of resistance to having three lead characters. At first, he was told to delete Exley and Vincennes and make the film a star vehicle for the actor playing Bud White. When he explained why Exley was essential, they told him to delete White and Vincennes. When he insisted that all three were essential, he was given a budget of only $15 million, which meant he could not afford to hire a big-name actor to headline the film, even if he wanted to, which he didn't. He wanted to hire actors who brought no audience expectations to the kind of role they would be playing. An exception to this rule was James Cromwell, whom audiences would expect to be one of the heroes after seeing him in Babe of 1995. You know, I have to pause it really quick just because, again, that is a strong testament to how 
awesome this movie is. My probably like several films that are in my top 10 of all time consist of actors that you don't really know much about in terms of their, their acting histories when you saw that film for the first time. And I think a film like that, like, like LA confidential is one of those types of films where like Kim Basinger. Yeah. I saw her like in Batman and that was like, you know, about nine years earlier. Uh, I want to say or 10 years. I think it was nine. Well, 89. Yeah. More like eight years, seven years. But, um, you know, when you look at, at Guy Pierce, Russell Crowe, uh, even Kevin Spacey, who had made some other films, but still like, like they were still kind of up, up and coming. It reminded me of like Star Wars, for example, when you saw A New Hope, I mean, you kind of knew about Harrison Ford a, a little bit based off of like American Graffiti, but he really didn't have much to go on. And so it was that much more engrossing and immersive of an experience as a moviegoer because it wasn't like I'm watching Tom Cruise play Tom Cruise in uh, a certain type of movie. It's literally like these people are much more realistic and able to accept as them being those characters. Going back to the trivia here, the Victory Motel, where the cinematic shootout takes place, was the only set actually constructed for the film. And Steve, I'm not sure if you have heard of the Wilhelm Scream. Are you familiar with the Wilhelm Scream? No. Well, the Wilhelm Scream is something that has been used a lot through um, Hollywood. And essentially it's a type of scream you hear in movies that is totally recognizable. Like, like if, if I were to play it for you, I don't have it here, but the Wilhelm scream is you. It's actually, you know, speaking of star Wars, it's used in star Wars and it's used in Indiana Jones. It's, it's used in so many movies. Um, I think I might know what you're talking about. It's, it's that, it's that signature scream that always sounds good. For some reason, um, people just accept it for what it is. I, I used to know this, the origin story of this. I want to say that it was put together maybe at Skywalker sound, but I don't know hundred percent if that's accurate or not. It may have been through something else, but anyway, I do know that Skywalker sound uses it a ton. I mean, even, I think even in toy story, they use it as a joke. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's so funny. Like how many different movies, if you were to Google up Wilhelm scream in movies, I'm sure someone has put together a comprehensive list of like every single movie that it's used in. And it's just, it's become part of that kind of fun little pop culture thing. And that is your trivia courtesy of IMDb. So Steve, what are your concluding thoughts of this film? Well, Russ, I, uh, I can't help but think how much inspiration LA noir brought to, uh, well, no, no, hell, let me rephrase. Having a moment of dyslexia, are we still? <laughs> <laughs> L.A. Noir got a lot of inspiration from this movie, and it makes me want to go back and play it. I played that game like once all the way through and loved it, and then like, I put it on the shelf and then started playing other stuff. And they then had a remastered like, version of that game. I too. know. I and I, I saw it. I'm like, oh, I should pick that up, and I never did. And then I see L.A. Confidential, and I think I want to go back through and play L.A. Noir. Maybe when the Series X comes out, is it on? Is it on Game Pass? It might be, honestly. You'll have to take a look and see. Because I sold everything 360 to get the Xbox once. I don't even have it anymore. Yeah, that was a great... Uh, I was going to say great movie. That was, a, that was a, a great game. I did play it once as well. 
and didn't play through it a second time, but I think it'd be worth going through. And I, I had the same thought when I was watching the film, like, man, like, why aren't there more games that are like this? And then I instantly thought of LA Noir and thinking, man, that was such a good game. So anyway, continue. No, I actually that no, that was one of my concluding thoughts. I, I don't want to leave it there. I always wanted to see You have uh, to give your rating too, by the way. I, thank you very much. I want to see a sequel to this movie come out, Russ. Because if you follow Bud, I mean Bud's not gonna stay where he is. Yeah, he got hurt and and you know he goes off with Lynn and they live happily ever after. He's not gonna be satisfied with that lifestyle, Russ. He ain't done yet. Neither is Ed Exley. Mm-hmm. Ed Exley still has is still gonna struggle, but he but he wants to be the good cop, but he's still gonna struggle. And like evil and bad people don't end there. I want to see a sequel. It is surprising that they never actually made a sequel because the books are already made. They yeah. like like the. <laughs> The flow is already set up and, and the content and everything else. And so it is kind of surprising, especially considering that they won a couple of Oscars. I, I'm i going to look. I'm guessing that the other Oscar they won was probably for best screenplay. I am seeing some joygasm tweets to the director in the near future saying, hey, what are you doing nowadays? Huh? <laughs> what are you doing nowadays? You got a little extra change in your pocket to make a sequel? I think it should happen. You could you could do that, Steve. You 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 could you could certainly do that. Um, yes, I was correct. So okay, so to to put it to rest, so Kim Basinger won Best Supporting Actress. See, so I'm I don't I'm surprised that she wasn't nominated for Best Actress. That's kind of odd to me, but anyway. Um, and then it also won for best adapted screenplay. Now it was nominated for best picture, best original score, best director, best in photography, best uh, production design, best sound mixing, best film editing, but it did not win those. I think most, if not all those went to Titanic. Nonsense. (laughs) So anyway, you were saying, do you want to get my rating? Yeah. That's that's why I wanted to kick it back to you. So I would say, um, this would be a five-star movie, but I just think that it, it there, there's some timing issue with it, and there's so much that you have to pay attention to where the second go-round, if you just go to watch this movie once, you're probably going to miss it, and you probably won't get all there is to get. You have to watch it twice to get everything. But I think if you're patient enough to watch all the way through and you can pick up everything and know like what names they're talking about because that's the first time I watched it, it was lost. And even watching snippets out of it, it just wasn't enough there to really motivate me to go out and watch the movie until I just, it just was convenient basically. And then I watched it and was grateful for it. So it does take, it does take some patience to appreciate it. So I would say with everything there, that the cinematography, oh, the, the, the characters, and thank you for the script, my goodness. There's a lot of art and that, that that is in the film that might not just be seen on the cover like it would be with Titanic. But you have to you have to do a little bit of digging. But the digging is fun. So I would say I would say four and a half out of five for me. I would say four and a half out of five. Well, so on my side of things, as I mentioned earlier, it's no surprise. This is one of my absolute favorite yeah, movies. Yeah, you said that. Right, right. And uh, don't, don't take that away from me, Steve. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to gush. <laughs> You've been gushing this whole time. What is interesting about 
the genre of this film is that you don't really see it come out very often. Like if you think about like post LA confidential, what other type of film has been released that is the same style? Hmm. I can't think of one. Yeah. And it's been over 20 years. Or at least not of any good ones. I mean, really, I can't I even, yeah, there, there may have been some little minor caper things. I would, I would say uh road to perdition is kind of sort of in that same eh, vein, but they're not, not really, really dealing with like police. It's, not it's, it's more of just straight up gangsters. Gangsters. From the, yeah. The, like the twenties and thirties. Yeah. And stuff. Um, but yeah, like, like I, for me, I think it is a, a very entertaining romp through when you have some sort of crime drama thing like this, that's not for TV, but for movies, it's, it's a film type of experience. And there, to me, there, I think it's so interesting to look at a time period that really was like our grandparents' prime. And you, so you look at, at how things were, and yeah, it's under a, a bit of a, a skewed visage because they're, they're trying to tell a story. It's not like they're like, oh, this is how it actually was back in the day. You know, they, they have certain elements that briefly speak to it and that sort of thing because they're trying to build this world. Uh, but I do think that these types of films are really fascinating. I, I, for one am fascinated by the idea of being able to look in a political system that is more city based. I like the idea of having some sort of very um, plot twisting narrative that goes on where the, the story is kind of revealing slowly as a slow burner, like what's happening, who did what, certain discoveries that are made, um, that sort of thing. Um, my hope though, is that I really do want to see more of a return to the film noir style. I, I really do like that a lot. I think there's, a, there's just, there's just so much atmosphere and mood that I think is exclusive to that particular genre. And I know it was popular back in the, like the twenties and thirties, for example, but like, I, I want to see a nice return to that because even from a, like a cinema photography standpoint, you got some, beautiful opportunities to be able to, to really tell the story in a way that's not through the script or through a performance of, of the actors themselves. And especially when it comes to black and white filming, we're so used to like seeing films that, that are, are in color and there's nothing wrong with color, but I do think that, you know, black and white is so underused these days and it would be fantastic. I would love it if like in the next couple of years we have some sort of like total film noir, black and white cop caper, uh, crime drama thing that comes out. It, it would just be fantastic. I, I would love that a lot. And so that, I think that's why I hold this film in such high esteem because they, it's very like seldom that, that you see it. You, you don't really see this kind of thing come out very often at all. And I think that like Curtis Hansen and the crew and the cast did such a monumental job with this, that, that it is a love letter to that type of genre and to that time period. So for me, I mean, it, it's, it's a very easy five stars. Um, I do think that especially in today's culture that is so ADD and so like, I want my instant gratification. I want it now kind of thing. It is um, a great example of like how you can be entertained and, f and, and, the, and the film has an expectation 
for you to listen and pay attention to, to the story they're telling. You can't just sit back and turn your brain off. And I respect that about the film because there are so many films of today where they hit you on the nose so hard. So that way you don't miss anything. And it's, it's overly direct. And I, I think that it's a, it's a strong testament to this film, especially when I think of other films that, that kind of do the same thing because you don't have a lot of films that are able to do that. Where like every time you watch, you're like, Oh, that's what that is over there. And that's what this connection is here and yada, yada, you know? So you get more bang for your buck. It's, it's uh, worth a rewatch times 50. So that wraps up this episode of Joy Guys, and make sure you tune in next week. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to check out patreon.com slash joygasm, which is spelled J-O-Y-G-A-S-M, and consider becoming a monthly contributor. You'll get exclusive perks and early access to the show, not to mention it really helps us doing what we love to do. And be sure to tell all your friends and family about the show. We're looking to expand and get that word of mouth going, and so we could really use everyone's help. It'd be much appreciated. Also, you can follow us on social media and YouTube. Just do a search for Joygasm TV. Last but not least, search Joygasm TV on Twitch to see us stream our gaming adventures live every Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Central Time. We will see you all next week.